I once worked for UPS as a delivery assistant during their holiday rush, which basically meant I got to sit in the jump seat of a UPS truck and run packages to and fro uh, from people's doors to the truck and from the truck to, to people's doors. And I remember on my first day asking the driver, who is this grizzled old UPS veteran, what his biggest piece of advice was about doing the job. And he was a quiet sort of man with a deep, raspy voice, who after a rather lengthy and pregnant pause, he said, well, you always got to know where the dogs are. And in that moment, that made perfect sense to me. But as my hours on the job turned into days, turned into weeks, as one delivery turned into 10,000, that bit of wisdom slowly slipped from my mind. Until one day, I absentmindedly stooped down to place a package on someone's front porch, when all of a sudden, my senses alerted me that there was an ominous presence very close at hand. So in my crouch, I turned around, and there she was, Penelope the Pitbull, or Penny for short, a massive hundred-pound biting and fighting machine standing nose-to-nose with me. And she had a rather hangry and annoyed look in her eye. So purely out of a desire to survive, I faked left and sprinted right, hopped a fence and leaped onto the truck, slamming the sliding door closed just behind me, only to hear and to see Penny come crashing angrily into the side of the truck, snarling in a fit of rage. As we drove away for our next delivery, I had to catch my breath a bit. I had to take a moment to make sure I didn't leave behind any limbs or fingers. And as we drove away, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a smirk on the driver's face begin to appear. And I heard him say, and that, my friend, is why you always got to know where the dogs are. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen is famed for saying, be killing sin or it be killing you. Therefore, as we navigate this thing we call the Christian life, one of the things we need to be aware of is our sin, particularly the glittering vices that seem so captivating and ensnaring to us, or to quote a title from Jerry Bridges, the respectable sins that can so easily entangle and deceive us. In other words, we need to know where the dogs are. So tonight we begin a new sermon series called The Battles Before Us where we will be examining common sins, the struggles accompanying them, but also the gospel's cure and hope in that struggle. Yet in seeing our sin, we also need to behold the glory of our God and the wonder of His grace. Because in beholding God's glory and being gripped by His grace, God changes everything, including us. Because by it and through it, we can endeavor 
with the Holy Spirit to put sin to death and to seek and to pursue righteousness and holiness. And tonight we direct our attention to the sin that sits at or at the very least is very nearby the headwaters of every other sin, our pride. A sin far easier to spot in another than in the mirror. C.S. Lewis says, make no mistake about it. Pride is the great sin. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool. On the tongue of a braggart, pride and arrogance is easily spotted. But for most of us, the lion's share of the battle against pride is within. For pride is a parasite that attaches itself to our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes, seeking to shape and twist them towards self or the things of this world rather than lifting our eyes heavenward. Because to quote C.S. Lewis once again, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. So tonight we look at pride. And I want to introduce us to a man named Naaman. A man that we find in 2 Kings chapter 5. And as we look at Naaman and his story, I want us to see three things. The root of pride, the fruit of pride, and how God's grace uproots our pride. So hear now God's word from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a man, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha heard, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. 
Are not Abana and Farpar, the, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not... Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Thus far the word of the Lord. Our first point this evening is the roots of pride, which we see in verses 1 through 8. Our passage begins by telling us a man's name, his profession, and that he was a great man. For General Naaman was, as verse 1 says, a great man, that he was a man held in high favor, that he was a mighty man of valor. In other words, Naaman was a big deal. And our text wants us to see it. To see that from a worldly perspective, he truly had it all. Wealth, prestige, respect, power, authority, and success. To have achieved such greatness, Naaman must have been an immensely gifted, intelligent, accomplished, dependable, capable, respected, revered, and valiant man. A man who was also beloved and respected by one of the most powerful, influential, and important men in all the world, the king of Syria. Because as our text tells us, it had been through his military exploits and heroics that the Lord had given victory to the Syrian army. For as verse 1 says, it was because of and by him that the Lord had given victory to Syria. And I love this, that even in detailing the greatness of Naaman, the author reveals that our God is greater. That our God, the one true God, is always and forever sovereign over the, the affairs of men. That he is the one who from eternity past has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Which means that even in Israel's defeat, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still the king. He is ruling and reigning over all things, all kingdoms, and all men. Naaman may be great, but brothers and sisters, our God is greater. Greater than even the mighty and valiant Naaman, whose men likely sat around campfires and told stories and sang odes about the famed and fabled exploits of their beloved general. For Naaman had worked hard, and he had accomplished quite a bit. And as we come, we'll come to see 
at least inwardly, he seems rather proud of it all. He's rather impressed with himself and all that he's managed to accomplish. And it makes sense. Because who doesn't want to be successful? Who doesn't want to accomplish impressive and consequential things? Who doesn't want to be remembered well? Who doesn't want our accolades to, as the saying goes, echo into eternity? The truth is we were created by God to live consequential lives. The Lord created Adam and Eve and then gave them a great and glorious purpose to glorify him as they filled the earth and subdued it. That's why within each of us, there is a desire to succeed, to be quote-unquote good at life, because we want our lives to matter, to actually be of good consequence. Because at the end of our days, when all of the trappings of our life are stripped away, the words each of us long to hear are the approving words of our Heavenly Father, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's why accomplishments, success, admiration, and acknowledgement of others and from others can truly be a delightful gift, a blessing from the hand of God. But there's also an idol factory at work within our hearts, a factory with an immense ability to turn good things into great things, important and necessary things into ultimate things. Therefore, we must be aware that while success and accomplishment can be a tasty and encouraging morsel, sometimes residing in the ooey-gooey middle of it, we can also discover a hook, the hook of pride. And as we will see in our story, that's the hook that Naaman had swallowed down deep. And it had become anchored in and taken hold of his heart perhaps encouraging Naaman to consider himself somehow deserving or at least worthy of being healed. See, pride always traffics in convincing its connoisseurs that we'd just be fine on our own. That yes, we can trust God with the big stuff, like world peace. But for everything else, we should probably just trust ourselves. To look to and trust in our own determinations, our own diligence and capabilities. How tragic it is when we allow the good gifts and talents that God has given us for his kingdom and for his glory to instead keep him at arm's length as we revel in the power of self rather than resting in the power of God. And it is here, brothers and sisters, where God, the great and gracious surgeon, goes to work on Naaman's heart. And he begins to slowly but surely excise the pride of his heart by the roots. See, God's grace is amazing. And it can be a joyful comfort in sorrow, but grace can also devastate us at times. It can shock us. It can shake us down to the very core of who we are. And that's exactly what the Lord does with Naaman. See, Naaman was a man who had it all including leprosy. You see, our great man had a great problem. He was slowly but surely dying, and there was no cure for his ailment. In the ancient world, leprosy was nicknamed the walking death because day by day he would become increasingly desensitized 
and his body would begin to fall apart bit by bit by bit. Leprosy was made all the worse because it horribly disfigured its victims. And in many cultures and communities, it was met with much fear and anxiety, causing those afflicted with the disease to not only die, but in their final days and years to be ostracized or even cut off from family, friends, and everyday society. Now, our text is silent about this, but one can surmise that confronted with the reality of his own death, Naaman had exhausted all other options. He likely had sought out second and third opinions from Syria's best and brightest doctors and specialists, that he had offered up countless sacrifices and prayers to his gods, that he had taken any number of elixirs or home remedies, all with the hopes that maybe something out there could heal him. Yet for all of his success, for all of his wealth, for all of his greatness and influence, His problem was even greater than he was. And here, in the deafening silence of despair and hopelessness, is where a hopeful whisper comes from an unlikely and an unexpected hero. A little slave girl. A girl who would have been nearly invisible in that society. A little girl who had been captured during a Syrian raid. One of of some inconsequential village in Israel. A little girl who eventually found herself working in the house of Naaman in the service of his wife, Mrs. Naaman. But little did they know that there was something amazing about that little girl. That while most of the nation of Israel did what was right in their own eyes and worshipped other gods, this little girl's family had raised her to worship the one true God. And while verses 2 and 3 leave us with a number of unanswered questions... Like what became of her family and friends? Had they been killed in the very same raid that saw her hauled off into slavery? None of which which we know, nor are we given. Nor do we hear any more about this little girl's story. All we do know is that according to God's sovereign plan, her life had taken a rather awful turn. Yet despite the trauma and the sorrow of her experience, she remained faithful And she believed in the one true God. And that rather than bitterness and anger towards her captors, she instead seeks to be a blessing to them. As she tells Mrs. Naaman that there was still a prophet of the one true God in the land of Israel. A prophet whom she was confident could heal her husband of of his leprosy. Well, like the golden rays of dawn, hope comes flooding into Naaman's life. So how does Naaman respond to this potential solution to his great problem? And it is here where we begin to see with great clarity the roots of his pride at work in his life. Because rather than chart a course directly to see this prophet, what does Naaman do? He sets out first to leverage the vast resources of his greatness to ensure that he will obtain that which he so desperately needs. Bringing with him, as they say, the carrots and the stick. He thinks to himself, I have all of this influence. I have all of this sway with the Syrian king. So the time has come to cash in all of my chips. So I'll have my boss write the king of Israel, who should be able to get the prophet of Israel to do exactly what I want. 
Because the king of Israel won't have the courage nor the audacity to risk upsetting the great king of Syria by denying my request. And if that's not enough, I'll make sure to make it worth his while. So I'll bring with me the bounties of all of my greatness, my silver, my gold, and the finest of clothing. But I don't want to be too nice. I don't want to give this prophet nor his king too many options to wiggle free from giving me what I want. So I'll bring with me an army. And I will let the thundering horde of my greatness serve as the visible and the audible warning of my great power and authority. So he calls to action his mighty men. Who mount up on horse and chariot and ride out together with him to Israel. See, in all of these ways, Naaman is leveraging his vast greatness with the hopes that he can ensure that he will get exactly what he wants. Because from a worldly perspective, who could say no to such a man? Bearing such gifts and wielding such greatness. That's why having read the letter, the king of Israel rips and tears his clothes because he doesn't have the power the authority, nor even the ability to give Naaman what he wants. So clearly he's just looking to start a fight. See, armed with this letter from the king of Syria, an armored truck full of gold, silver, and the finest of clothes, and an army of mounted soldiers and chariots, Naaman's greatness by all earthly standards is rather impressive. And made all the more terrifying since that which Naaman desires and is demanding of the king of Israel wasn't something that was, that was even within his power to give. It is until he receives word from the prophet Elisha, asking him, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman sets out for Elisha's house, likely increasingly assured that he will get exactly what he wants. Which leads us to our second point, the fruits of pride. Which is in verses 9 through 14. A strange thing happens when Naaman shows up at Elisha's house. And I don't know what, uh, and remember Elisha's no king. He's, so he's not showing up at a palace. And I don't know what the Zestament would have been on Elisha's house. But even in this market, I don't think it would, have able, would be able to fetch a significant amount. All that to say, I don't think this house would have been all that impressive. Yet here you have this great general commanding and leading this great mounted army of horsemen and chariots with wagons full of gold, silver, and clothing. And they all show up at this likely simple and insignificant looking house. For perspective, let's imagine if 250 tanks just one day showed up in front of the cove. If I was teaching the youth, I somehow don't think we would get through that lesson that day. Personally, I get curious when someone randomly pulls a U-turn in my driveway, how much more if 250 tanks come lumbering up in my front lawn? Yet Elisha doesn't seem to be bothered or troubled by all of this commotion taking place in his front yard. Whether he's cleaning up some dishes, cleaning out the fridge, or just watching an episode of the great British Bake Off, Elisha doesn't seem to even stop what he's doing. He casually gives one of his guys instructions for what Naaman must do to be healed, but then he just keeps going about his day. 
He doesn't even go outside to meet and greet Naaman. He seemingly doesn't even feel the need to take a peek through the curtains. Again, he's not living in Downton Abbey. He's not sitting quietly oblivious in some vast library in the the back of the house. No, he knows exactly who and what is happening out on his front lawn. Yet he never even comes to the door. He sends a messenger to walk out the front and tell Naaman that all he needs to do to be healed is to go wash in the Jordan seven times. If he'll do just that, his flesh will be restored and he will be clean. Friends, Elisha is offering Naaman the solution to his great problem. Yet how does he respond? Well, he's upset, he's angry, and he storms off in a rage. Why? Well, have a look down at verse 11. I thought that he would surely come out to me. And in the Hebrew, the word me is emphatic. Like, doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know who my references are? Doesn't he know how important, how big of a deal I am? You see, Naaman has arrived with the pomp and circumstance of his greatness. But the only thing that Elisha seems willing to acknowledge is his brokenness. See, rather than treating and responding to Naaman like a man of power, importance, and influence, Elisha just treats him like a leper in need of healing. Elisha sees the greatness of his need rather than the greatness of the man. And that drives the great general Naaman into a rage. Because how dare Elisha treat me like I'm some ordinary leper. So as he storms off, he seeks to discredit Elisha's commands. As one commentator says, that they were just way too simple and way too narrow to possibly be true. Too simple in that there's just, there's no spiritual razzle-dazzle. There's no spiritual rigmarole to it. Like surely there's got to be more of a song and a dance to all of this, to cure leprosy. Or as he says in verse 11, wouldn't Elisha need to stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper? See, in Naaman's mind, there's just got to be more to it than taking a bath in the Jordan River. This is just way too simple particularly for how complex the issue is. But Naaman is also frustrated that Elisha's command is so narrow. Like, why just the Jordan? There's nothing special about the Jordan River. Naaman has been to some of the world's greatest rivers in his life. And the Jordan is rather lackluster in comparison. Like, had this supposed prophet ever seen the great rivers of Abana and Farpar? Why couldn't I just wash in those? Why do I have to wash in this podunk, insignificant little river? Therefore, now fully enraged, Naaman takes his proverbial ball and heads home. And brothers and sisters, I want us to see from this is how grace infuriates our pride. Elisha is extending an amazing grace to Naaman. The very grace he so desperately needed. But that grace is being offered to him freely and without even the smallest acknowledgement or nod in the direction of his gifts or his greatness. 
Elisha continues to ignore such things. Elisha seems only willing to acknowledge Naaman's weakness, not his greatness. And Naaman's pride can't handle it. So his pride is literally driving him to walk away from his one and only hope in this world. You see, it is his pride and his pride alone that is keeping him from the healing that he so desperately needs. And like a fool in an effort to care for and assuage his pride, he is willing to abruptly storm off in anger. Well, fortunately for Naaman, he had some good men to encourage him along the way. And his faithful men ask him a really good question. We see it in verse 13. They ask him essentially, if Elisha had given, given him some ridiculous request, basically if he had told him that he needed to storm the castle and slay the dragon, would you have done it, Damon? And if so, why can't you at least give this a try? At least while we're here, Let's just give this simple and narrow solution a try. So into the Jordan River he goes, and out he comes, a new man. Which leads us to our third point, how grace uproots our pride. We see this in verses 15 through 19. The world, as Naaman had known it, had just changed. God's grace and glory does that. For it's not just his leprosy that Naaman leaves behind in the Jordan, but he also leaves behind his pride, his unbelief, and even his paganism. He now returns to Elisha, a changed and transformed man, now speaking face to face for the first time with Elisha in verses 15 through 19. We, we get to see how transforming God's grace can be as it has uprooted Naaman's pride. And quickly, I want us to see four ways that grace transforms us from this passage. The first is that God's grace gives us a new belief. Have a look down, verse 15, where Naaman, a Syrian general, says, There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. See, brothers and sisters, he went into the Jordan believing in the gods of Syria. But he leaves those waters, trusting and believing in the one true God. That the God who reigns and rules over all things, peoples and nations, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Israel. That the gods he and his parents grew up worshiping, the gods he had sacrificed to for so many years, weren't gods at all. For Naaman, there was now but one true God. And that God was to be the Lord and King of his life for the rest of his days. So God's grace had given Naaman a new belief. Second, God's grace gives him a new posture. Notice that five times in verses 15 to 19, this once great and proud man, as he speaks to Elisha, refers to himself as your servant. Remember, he was a man who had arrived at Elisha's house with great pomp and circumstance. Yet now he stands before Elisha and declares himself in front of his army to be his servant. You see, the fruit that grace has produced in Naaman's heart and life was a posture of humility. That rather than needing and seeking for his greatness to be made known, he seeks instead the humble path of service. You see, it's God's grace that spins and turns our hearts towards humility, which is the only way to slowly but surely unwind the grip 
that pride has upon our hearts. So it is God's grace that gives us a new posture. Third, I want us to see how God's grace gives Naaman a new commitment to worship. In his exuberant joy, Naaman offers Elisha a gift. A gift that is quickly rebuffed because no amount of silver, no amount of gold could merit the gift that Naaman had received. But in response, Naaman doesn't take offense, but only makes a request that he be given as much dirt as two mules could possibly carry. But why does he want this? Why does he want some dirt? Well, when he gets home, he wants to worship the Lord, to build an altar to worship him. So he asks for a big pile of dirt to take with him so that he can build an altar to the one true God, so that he can worship the Lord as he returns to his home. Because God's grace gives us a new and greater commitment to worship the Lord. And last, God's grace gives us new sensitivities. Pretty soon life was going to get back to normal for Naaman. And normal life for him was as a Syrian general. And there were some tricksy and occupational hazards that he was going to have to navigate. A particular concern for him was when the king of Syria would go to worship in the house of Ramon one of the gods of Syria. And the king would need Naaman to help him to get up and down as he worshiped the false god, Ramon. And in light of his new belief in the one true God, Naaman recognizes and is sensitive to the tensions that this this sets up. So he humbly asks Elisha for his pardon for this. He seeks his wisdom and guidance and direction in how to navigate this occupational hazard. And what does Elisha say? He surprisingly and maybe even frustratingly says, go in peace. But all the same, grace has borne within Naaman a sensitivity that wasn't there previously. Things that he had done so absentmindedly and in such a cavalier way before now pricked his increasingly tender conscience as he desires and longs to be faithful to the one true God. God's grace then gives us new sensitivities as we seek to live out the implications of his grace at work in our lives. Brothers and sisters, the God, the the glory of God through the wonder of his grace does amazing things. And that's how I want to conclude this evening. The gracious work of the Lord of glory healed a pagan general named Naaman of his leprosy. And as we've seen, that leprosy ran far deeper than mere skin. The deadly leprosy of pride had been driven deep down within his soul. And friends, lest we too in our pride forget, apart from Christ, we are all like Naaman, spiritual lepers, Numb, desensitized, and falling apart in our sin. Blind and oblivious to the goodness and glory of our God. For as Paul says, we all fall short of the glory of God. Elsewhere he says that we were all once spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. Yet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the God of promise. The God of hope. A God who promised that one day a Messiah would come. 
And the remarkable truth is that years after Naaman came up out of the waters of Jordan, a man even greater than he was baptized in these very same waters. Jesus Christ, our Savior. And he was baptized that we too, like Naaman, might have our leprous spots once and forevermore restored and cleansed from all of our unrighteousness and pride. For as Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself the weight of God's wrath towards sin. So that in taking upon himself our guilt, our shame, he gives to us his righteousness. And we are declared righteous by faith in his finished work. We stand then before God forgiven, justified, and adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters on account of the work of Christ and Christ alone. Friends, the God of the Bible is a God who, as James tells us, opposes the proud, but who gives grace to the humble. That's why pride is the greatest folly of them all. Because rather than seeking and knowing the one true and living God in our pride, we set out to be gods ourselves. So then, brothers and sisters, let us endeavor together by God's grace and the Spirit's power to walk the lowly and humble path to Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith, who though he was God, counted himself as nothing and walked the humble and lowly road before us so that in beholding and looking to him and his glory, we might be gripped by his